Uh, we'll be reading just uh, a small portion of it just because there's uh, so much uh, to this text. There's a lot of reading of it. But I will try to do my best to uh, preach to you the full force of what this chapter brings to us. Uh, and so I've, I've entitled this message, Functional Idolatry, the Weight of the World. Functional Idolatry, the Weight of the World. Uh, let us now get into the reading of God's Holy Word in Daniel chapter 5. Here's God's word. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand, and the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers. And the king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom, in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And the king Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the, the king, made him chief of the magicians and enchanters, the Chaldeans and astrologers, because an excellent spirit, knowledge and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles and solve problems were found in this Daniel whom the king named Belshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. That's the reading of God's word. We'll cut it there, but we'll get into uh, the full scope of this chapter. Would you join with me in prayer as we bow our heads and ask the Spirit to illumine our hearts? Father in heaven, we thank you for this time where we can hear your word and be preached to in this series. And I pray that as we continue to look about our lives and faith uh, in this uh, pluralistic world, we pray that we would be able to continue to lean on the works of your hands. And Father, we have so many different things that uh, get our attention, that, that we hope in. And sometimes, a lot of the times, it's not you. And I pray that we would, you would open our eyes to these things, that you would open our, our hearts to uh, the, 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 the word of the gospel, and that we would truly worship that, 
Live for that and live for you ultimately. We thank you, O Lord, for your good, good word. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, I've entitled this message, Functional Idolatry, the Weight of the World. Uh, And my son uh, used to uh, love asking me those questions. And you may have had these questions when you were younger, the would you rather type questions. And I wanted to highlight to you that he used to ask me these questions. He doesn't uh, ask them anymore because I, um, I don't really like to play along. Uh, I'm kind of that jerk dad. Um, and so one time we got into a really big argument because uh, he asked me, you know, what would you, what, dad, what would you do if a, if a, a T-Rex came barging into, uh, uh, on us in the backyard? And I just would, uh, you know, whatever, combatively just say, you know, I just get my T-Rex gun and I'll just destroy it. No problem. And then he would come back at me and say, no, no, dad, you can't do that. There's no such thing as a T-Rex gun. And then I'd respond to him, T-Rexes don't exist. And then, man, we got into this really, really, really bad argument where we started yelling at each other um, because we were stubborn and trying to say who was right. Um, and, and, and the moral of the story was ultimately that I don't really play along very well. Um, uh, Leah says that I have a terrible imagination. And so when I, I take things very literally, uh, and so I don't really like to play along. And so why did... Alistair, uh, stop asking me these would you rather questions is because I would just not really answer them very well. Uh, uh, you know, he would say, Dad, you know, would you, you know, rather tightrope walk over the Grand Canyon uh, or parach- uh, without a parachute or, or swim in a hungry alligator pit? And I would say, Alistair, that's a dumb question, okay? Um, my, my firm foundations are in Jesus. Why would I tightrope walk when I have a firm foundation? I don't know why I'd be petty like that, but I would. I know I'm a really terrible dad. I don't play along with him. Um, but a firm foundation is pivotal to the Christian life. You like that transition, right? That was a terrible, this is a terrible beginning. But uh, a firm foundation is, a, is pivotal to the Christian life. Uh, and we like this chapter are offered the world's offerings. We like this chapter. We like the world are given the offerings of the world as if they are firm foundations. But we learn in our lives and due to God's revelation, specifically in his word and through the work of our Lord Jesus Christ, that the world's offerings are shaky ground. Now, let's take a a look at the movement from king to king in explaining this, okay? We're going to look at three points. The father-son comparison. Secondly, the weighing the world's offerings. And then thirdly, the mercy of our God. But let's begin with the the father-son comparisons. You see, the story starts with this new king. Okay, remember from last week, Nebuchadnezzar's gone. He died, but he, he died making one of the, the great uh, you know, doxological praises and declarations of a changed and transformed Christian and man, right? And then we begin to see that his son, Belshazzar, takes over as king. And look at how Belshazzar's kingdom starts in verses 1 through 4. What does he do? He throws this elaborate party. Now, outwardly, 
right? We, this is a glorious event. A, a thousand nobles were invited to drink with the king and to watch him start by drinking this wine. This is like the, um, you know, I've always found this very odd, the, the Met Gala in, in, in New York, right? Where all these celebrities just dress up and just show up on a red carpet just to get themselves to get pictures of it and to show off their riches, right? This is what's kind of going on. It is, there's no point in, in this party. There's no point in, in this celebration. It's just the king, this new king, trying to show up. Everyone is dressed in their finest of clothes and, and the tables are set with the most ornate silverware. Yet by focusing our attention on how elaborate this feast is, the, the narrator is intentionally doing this subtly underlying thing for us. Right? He's subtly telling us that there is such emptiness in the remainder of Belshazzar's life. He thinks he tries to be this king, and this king is trying to do his deeds and whatever, but the narrator is trying to foreshadow to you that his life becomes absolutely nothing. Now, if you've seen the Game of Thrones, um, which, shame on you, right? Uh, you Christians shouldn't watch that. Uh, you know, I, I'm just kidding. Um, he reminds me, Belshazzar kind of reminds me of that bratty young kid, King Joffrey, right? Who had no wisdom and, and no sense for the people. He just did things for his own, in his own whim and in his own way, okay? Um, now, let's compare Belshazzar with his father for a second. His father, Nebuchadnezzar, conquered people, right? He, he made mighty statues, as we've seen. He built wonders. He was the most powerful and well-known of kings. But his son, he just threw really good and elaborate parties. And these golden vessels that he takes and he asks his servants to bring to the centerpiece as the centerpiece of this party was taken from the Jerusalem temple, from God's temple, but that was not carried off by him. It says this, these golden vessels that, that Belshazzar makes mockery of was taken by his father. Belshazzar's only contribution was really, and it comes in one chapter, was just to profane the sacred and precious vessels from the Lord's house. That's all he did. And he, by, and he does, does it by using them as a, for a feast where he's praising his own gods. He's praising his own idols. These idols made out of gold and silver and bronze and iron and wood and stone. And like with his dad, in his sin, God's revelation comes. Look at verses 5 through 9, right? Obviously, when he has this party, God is not happy with Belshazzar's sheer rebellious action towards God in his temple. Belshazzar made a, bel a mockery of God with his party, bringing on those golden vessels. But again, look at the difference between Belshazzar and the way his father reacted in his previous life, responding to God's revelation. You see, when Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, he was troubled, he was frightened, but he aimed to figure it out with his own power. He was a very mighty man. Belshazzar was almost the opposite. He was a really frail and weak king. He was completely undone by the handwriting on the wall from God. 
Look at verse 6. It says, Then the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. The force of the Hebrew is to say that he lost all control of his bodily functions when he saw God's revelatory action at his party. I can even imagine that there was a, a wet patch on his chair because of how he reacted to God's revelation. And even when he called his enchanters and wise men, the force of his actions are that of like this petulant child that's absolutely fearing for his life. It's almost like he lost his teddy and he's crying because he just wants to. He's left pale-faced. He's left indecisive at a loss to how to proceed. Now, of course, all of his wise men, as we know, could not interpret the writing. And as we read, in comes his mother, the queen, right, to solve this dilemma. Now, are you seeing the force, of, force that's going on, right? Um, mama has to step in. But see, in this time, for a woman to step in, even if it was his mom, is humiliating in ancient Near Eastern culture. But she comes with wisdom and experience telling her son that there's a man who helped out his father in the past. And the way that she speaks to him is is very uh, rebuking, right? The force is rebuking that Belshazzar should have known his father's history and that he should have turned to divine illumination when God's uh, revelatory rebuke came. If he would have known, she goes about saying, if only he was more like his father. And Belshazzar decided to follow his mother's advice, okay? So she, he finally says, okay, fine, mom, I'll do what you want me to do, and I'll do it, but I, he drags his feet. The queen mother's implicit rebu- rebuke it perhaps explains then, uh, we didn't read this part, but it explains then Belshazzar's defensive tone in this young king's voice when Daniel is finally summoned before him. He addressed Daniel not as the, uh, the, the chief of the, of the wise men in which his father appointed him as, but rather Daniel who was... Uh, uh, Exiled from Jerusalem, just a mere peasant. And even though he called Daniel in his despair, he still wanted to put Daniel firmly in his place at the outset. He said, by, he said you know, I've heard what you've done in the past, right? It shows his skepticism about Daniel. It shows his, um, his, his uh, lack of care towards Daniel. And in return, Daniel responds, omitting the usual, you know, Uh, politeness that he may have given previously in Babylonian courts, previously to his father. He told the king bluntly to keep your reward. Daniel's services are not up for sale to the highest bidder. He's not trying to take in money so that he can give the king a favorable interpretation of the dream, only if the price was right. However, what Daniel does do is he interprets this mysterious writing. Before he, do, he did that for the king, Daniel first puts the oracle into context, a context that once again compares his father and contrasts, uh, compares and contrasts he and his father. Okay, are you seeing that? 
Now look with me in verse 18, if you have your Bibles open. Okay? In verse 18, he reminded the new king that God did not give him the glory like he gave to his father. Now, obviously you could tell Belshazzar was not happy with that. But Daniel was firm in his declaration. God did not give you the glory like your father had. But even with the glory, Daniel goes on to say, God gave to his father. He also reminded Belshazzar that God himself humbled Nebuchadnezzar and brought him down from his lofty perch because of his pride. You see, the point of Daniel's speech is clear. King Nebuchadnezzar had something to be proud about. He built this kingdom. He was powerful, and yet the Lord humbled him. But you, Belshazzar, who fell far short of your father's glory, you should have learned from this experience, and you should have humbled yourself. Instead, although Belshazzar knew his past, he still exalted himself against the Lord, sacrilegiously profaning the temple vessels from Jerusalem by using them as in an idolatrous act of worship. He praised his powerless idols while neglecting the one true God who gave him his very life breath. You see, in verses 20 to 22 to 24, Daniel gives the reason why God's revelation came to him. Humble yourself, O king. Humble yourself. Now, I gave you kind of the, the context. Now, let's go to the second point, weighing the world's offer. In verses 20 to 20, 25 to 28, Daniel now reads and interprets this oracle, this handwriting on the wall. And it's a sequence. It's a sequence. Daniel explains it. The, num the Lord numbered the days of Belshazzar's kingdom and brought it to an end because Belshazzar had been weighed in the balance and he had been found waiting, wanting. And as a result, his former kingdom would be divided and given to the Medes and the Persians surrounding his kingdom. Now, that was the interpretation by Daniel. Did the king believe Daniel's interpretation of the inscription that was written on the wall? We don't know for sure. Certainly, Daniel was given the reward as promised. He got that purple coat, right? And even this was an empty gift because that very night that he had this party and was given the interpretation, the Medes and the Persians entered Babylon and overthrew his kingdom. Just one chapter of Belshazzar. And it's really ironic because on the night Belshazzar throws this huge party, that's all he's really known for, he was actually on the brink of his grave that night and he never even knew it. Now with Belshazzar's death, the Babylonian Empire was brought crashing down to the ground and its feet of clay is revealed. Does that remind you of a certain dream and interpretation? Chapter 2, you remember that dream given to his father, right? Where... The head was gold. That's his father. And every subsequent kingdom that followed would be a lesser kingdom, a less powerful kingdom, but they would dissolve and no foundation was good. And here we go. It's going again right now. And the once mighty kingdom becomes insubstantial and once uh, was ultimately blown away by the judgment of God. We could even say it like this. This new attempt at Babel, 
that Belshazzar does in his parties and trying to glory in himself, that too came under the judgment of God. Now, what lessons does this have for us? Well, first, this feast reminds us not to be awed and impressed by earthly power and wealth. Okay? God had weighed it in the balance and found it wanting, and he will soon bring this to an end. You see, God's power to bring down those who are truly mighty is a central theme in the previous chapter. And if God is able to humble the mighty, how much more is he able to bring down an empty king like Belshazzar? Right? Yet in our culture, we are apt to elevate not only those who have real accomplishments, but even those with empty pretensions. We're much too easily impressed by all that glitters. It doesn't have to be gold anymore. It could be crypto, right? But, uh, or NFT-like, whatever. But we're much too impressed by all these things that glitter in this world. And it speaks to how much uh, this world elevates things like celebrities. What, what actual achievements do they really have, Right? We idolize those who are physically attractive, those who have acquired great wealth, and even those who are simply famous for being, uh, that are famous for simply being famous. Belshazzar's feast, if you will, is set before us every day. And many around us are, are mortgaging our futures just for an invitation to that ball. But don't think that you're out of it. Maybe you're saying, I, I don't do that, right? I don't idolize the rich or the famous. I, I know better. You see, our envy operates at a far more mundane level than that. Maybe you don't like to watch uh, these celebrities and, and, and you, know, uh, you know, I'm not judging people who watch The Bachelor and stuff like that. Um, but, but our envy operates even at a more far mundane level, okay? We covet not only the assets uh, and the lifestyle of millionaires and celebrities, but we also covet those of our neighbors as well. We envy our neighbor's car. We envy their good looks. We envy their successful career. We even envy their obedient children. We also find ourselves boasting in our small accomplishments. Maybe it's your house that you're boasting in. Maybe it's your reputation. Maybe it's that hourglass figure. Whatever it is. And here's the reality, okay? You and I are all tin pot Belshazzars. Puffed up by our minuscule achievements, even though they might not amount to much on an earthly scale, let alone a heavenly one. You and I are... Small, minute Belshazzars. God's judgment on our empty pride is severe. Our, our, our deeds and accomplishments have been weighed in the balance and found wanting. And when we stand in God's presence, we have nothing of which to boast, really. You know, I find it funny. Most of us look at the, how God treated Nebuchadnezzar and how Nebuchadnezzar was this great king and mighty king. He's, he's in the history books and all this stuff. And God humbles him, and then he turns towards God. And a lot of us 
find ourselves thinking, yeah, we're Nebuchadnezzar. We're mighty and powerful. But in reality, I'm not trying to burst your bubble, but I'm bursting your bubble. We're more like his son. Empty. Lack of accomplishments. Nothing. You see, Belshazzar's ability to close his eyes to reality has a contemporary ring to it in every age. Just as Belshazzar feasted even while his enemies, uh, 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 the armies of his enemies were encamped out of his, outside his gates, so too are rebellious humanity actively suppressing the truth about God that bombards our senses on an everyday level all around us. Many around us eat and drink and pursue an actively sinful lifestyle, all while deliberately ignoring God's revelation of himself in the scriptures and in our consciences and in this world. Just as Belshazzar used the temple vessels to praise his false gods, you see, the point is we too take the things that belong to God and use them to feed our lusts and our, and our idol, idolatries. Now look at this. This is the third point. It's not only Belshazzar who gets judged, but it's also his gods. And Belshazzar praised his gods of wood and stone, and yet his gods could not keep the Lord's messenger from disturbing the peace of their feast. And as the book of Daniel unfolds, it'll become very clear that the reality that Israel's gods could effectively uh, defend the honor of his sacred vessels and the lives of his faithful servants rings true. Only God can protect his people. Nebuchadnezzar was humbled and, and converted. Belshazzar, as we see, didn't live long enough right, to find out. And have you, have you learned yet that the world's idols are, 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 are empty and powerless? Fame and fortune promise great rewards, but they're fickle masters. Wealth may seem to hold the key to an easy life, yet those who attain it discover that their lives become more complicated than ever. I, I always quote the great theologian Biggie Smalls, more money, more problems. It's true. Beauty, it's fleeting. Power, deceptive. None of these things can deliver true satisfaction and meaning in life. You see, where we are now in the West, we are tempt tempted to, to idolize freedom. We're tempted to idolize democracy as if these virtues had the power within themselves to transform this world. And all these things have as much substance as Belshazzar's feast. Everything stands in the same judgment. You see, the point of this whole chapter is that the Lord is the, is the one whom you should truly stand in awe of. God holds your life in his hands just as he held sway over Belshazzar's life. He could bring you to poverty in an instant through 
terrible health or misfortune. You see, what I'm getting at is, as Christians, we may say that we believe these truths, but in practice, we often act as if these truths are not true. Why is it that we are completely undone by far less than that which faced Belshazzar? Our hearts are racked with worry if our job is merely threatened or our car refuses to start. We are overwhelmed and despairing if our health breaks down or our treasured relationships end. Right? We, we, we respond angrily to people who insult us and damage our pride. These responses reveal our heart every bit as clearly as Belshazzar's feast revealed his pride and his idols and the trust that he had in them. We are all functional Belshazzars. Our excessively strong negative emotions show that we're invested in these things. Our jobs, our health, our relationships, our comfort, our status, our achievements, even while at the very same time we find ourselves confessing with our lips that Jesus is Lord. We take the very things that God has given us, our bodies, our talents, our, spou- our spouses, our children, our, our, our positions of influence and leadership, our various achievements, and we use them to offer worship to our empty idols. If we were to be weighed in God's balance, we would all be found wanting, profoundly guilty of the life that Belshazzar lived. See, we are at best half-shekel believers who deserve to be blown away by God in his wrath. And in reality, we should be astonished. We should be astonished that God continues to show us mercy. Right? God will bring down all of the proud. Some he will humble redemptively, but others he may merely bring them down to death, shown ultimately in a final moment of terror that their whole life has been an empty sham. God may treat you like Nebuchadnezzar or may treat you like Belshazzar, but you do not know. Don't play that game. We cannot presume on God's mercy. It's serious. It's a serious truth when God says in Romans chapter 9, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will harden whom I will harden. You see, this should act as another reminder of God's mercy for all of us. Why should I have been chosen as a recipient of grace while he passed over others who've accomplished far more with their gifts and have led much more moral lives than me, a Christian? There's nothing in me that makes me worthy of such a great inheritance. The only explanation is God's sovereign mercy that chose me in spite of my stubborn pride and self-centeredness and opened my eyes to the depths of lostness without Jesus Christ. 
You see, in comparison to Belshazzar's kingdom, there's a greater one. But Jesus' kingdom doesn't come flashy with all the glitz and glamour. Jesus had no possessions. He possessed no power that we would exalt. He did not have a look about him that we would glorify. And yet, when Jesus' life was weighed in God's balance on the cross, God found it to be perfect and complete. Able to satisfy fully the demands of God's holiness, not just for himself, but for all that come to God through him. That's you. That's me. You see, this is our firm foundation. Any other king, any other idol that you worship, any other God that you try to throw all of your ducks in one place, they will crumble beneath your feet. But this gospel, our gospel, tells us that God weighed the life of Jesus Christ, the death of Jesus Christ, and resurrected him and said it was perfect and complete. And not only that, but you are now perfect and complete in him. And you see, brothers and sisters, this world is going to offer you everything Satan is going to offer you everything and you will find yourself searching and wanting for completeness and perfection and you'll never find it. But the offer is here before you that in Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection is everything that you need. Jesus plus everything is uh, Jesus plus everything is nothing. Jesus plus nothing is everything. And isn't that what this, um, these elements are for? Would you join with me as we pray?